prayer is a gift. In a world you don't understand or that you cannot change, prayer is something that is given to you that you can do. Perhaps prayer sometimes feels like something that is overwhelming, something that is a burden on us that we feel we do not perform as we should, that we feel guilt about it, that we do not know if we're doing it correctly or to the standard that we should. When there are so many ways in which prayer can be a weight placed upon our shoulders, we need to remember that prayer is a gift. Prayer is something that God has given to us for our good. And prayer is an aspect of what Jesus proclaimed most and most clearly, which is what we might call the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not sure that we always link these two things, the kingdom of God and prayer. But in the passage that we'll look at today, I think that these two things are linked and that that link is important for us to understand and to allow that link to shape the way that we think. What we call the Lord's Prayer is recorded in two places in the Gospels. It's recorded in the passage that we've read in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 6. It's also recorded in Luke chapter 11. The two records are slightly different, which may mean that the way in which uh, the gospel writers have uh, taken the words of Jesus, which were probably in Aramaic and reflected them in Greek, may be slightly different. Or it may be that Jesus used uh, the prayer and showed the prayer to the disciples in more than one uh, context and in different occasions. But in both cases, the common themes are very, very strong, and there is a clear uh, similarity in the structure. Within a very short time, this prayer was recognized as a gift to the church and something that the church would use regularly within its formal gathering. So by the end of the first century, a document known as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, sometimes known by its Greek uh, term, the Didache, already has instructions on how to use this prayer and it is uh, recorded in much the same way as we said it today in our service. This prayer is a remarkable expression of the community of God's people unified through prayer throughout the ages. So when you think about it, the prayer that you said today, as you took those words on your lip, on your lips, you shared that prayer with people like the first disciples of Jesus who were taught that prayer. You shared it with people in the age of the apostolic fathers and the early uh, days of the church, the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. 
You shared it with people in uh, different parts of the ancient world, people like Augustine and Irenaeus, people uh, from Syria and from North Africa. You shared it now with people who are scattered throughout the world in the global church, people praying this prayer in Chinese and Mandarin and Cantonese, in uh, Isikosa in South Africa. You shared it with people who are praying it uh, in all parts of the world, in Spanish, in uh, all kinds of languages we might not recognize or might not know. This prayer has become a way in which we can be a part of the Christian community across all ages and across all languages and cultures. And Jesus gives this gift of a prayer that we might have words to say and that we might say words that reflect the purposes of God. Perhaps when we have tried to pray, we find ourselves uh, immediately thinking of the things that we want God to do for us. And there are endless good things that we might ask God to do for us. And this prayer validates that concern. But it also prays for things that we might not think to pray. And we'll see that the kingdom is one of those things. And the protection from the evil one is another that we might not immediately uh, find coming to our mind naturally. So I want to look at this passage for a little while today uh, and drawing out the key elements of the prayer, but also this connection with the kingdom. So kingdom prayer. Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom of God. He frequently referred to it, and he drew on a whole host of different themes that had already come through in the Old Testament. If we want to understand Jesus properly, we need to think of him in the context of the Old Testament. God shows that he is king by creation. He speaks, and what he says is done. That is sovereign power. God shows himself to be the king over all creation because that is what he is declared to be. He is not a king or a god who rules only over one particular locality or one nationality, which was a very common understanding in the Old Testament times. But he is the god of the nations. He is the king over all the earth. He is the king who is interested not just in our spiritual aspects of life, but in the whole of who we are as created beings, in our physicality as well as our spirituality. And so when Jesus comes and declares the kingdom of God is at hand, it's not that God was becoming king for the first time. He was always king. But in Jesus... The kingdom is coming near. The kingdom is being expressed in a way that is visible, tangible, we might say, and located in a particular special way in the person of Jesus himself. He is the embodiment. 
He is the enactor of God's kingly reign. And in that enactment, that embodiment of the kingdom of God, Jesus prays. It's quite an amazing thing that we find in the Gospels, Jesus praying on a regular basis. Sometimes the disciples have to go and find Jesus because he's praying. And so as the disciples see Jesus praying, they come to him, particularly according to Luke's account, and ask him, teach us to pray. So what does Jesus give them in this prayer? We call it the Lord's Prayer, but I think that its better title is the Disciples' Prayer. Because Jesus does not, in a sense, say, pray this along with me or join in my prayer. But rather he says, when you pray, pray like this. He gives these words as a gift to the disciples. And so if you're wondering what to pray today, or if you're puzzled as to whether you're praying in the right way, here's a gift for you, a form of words, pattern of prayer that you can use, that you know is going to be in line with Jesus' priorities, in line with the king of the kingdom's priorities. So let's look at this prayer. First thing I want to notice is that prayer is at the heart of the kingdom. Jesus regularly, as I've mentioned, is actively praying uh, and declaring his willingness to do God's will. We might think of the garden in Gethsemane where he prays fervently to God but says, not my will but yours be done. But then as we see the opening of this prayer, we realize that the king of the kingdom, we are invited to call father. Now, it's important to realize that father and king are not, in this situation, separated. He remains the king. But God invites his disciples to address him as father. In most circumstances where there is a king of a human uh, country, like our own country, uh, we don't have regular access. We can't just pop down to Buckingham Palace, Palace for a quick chat. But the king of the earth gives us access. He says freely, come into my presence. How? Through Jesus. By trusting in Jesus. By living uh, in faith in Jesus. By accepting Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. He is as John would put at the door, which gives us access into God's presence and enables us to use, staggeringly, the same word that Jesus used. So when Jesus, uh, in this distinctive uh, term of uh, the Aramaic term, Abba, speaks to God, Abba, Father, we are invited to use the very terms that Jesus uses to express his trust in the Father. And if the King is our Father, so the passage around our prayer here tells us that He knows our needs. It's very important that we recognize that the primary purpose of prayer is not to inform God. God is well aware of what needs to happen. He knows our hearts and minds. He knows 
what tears at our hearts, what weighs us down, what keeps us awake at night. He knows that. And if you are his child, if you are trusting in him, if you have come to him through Jesus, then the wonderful thing is he is more interested in acting for your good than you are in praying for his help. His concern is to act for your good. The difficulty we face sometimes is that we don't have sufficient knowledge to know what is for our good. Tim Keller uh, once put it like this, that um, when God answers our prayers, he answers with what we would have asked for if we had understood the situation as he does. In other words, we don't always just see a part of the picture. And so we don't know what to ask for. God deals with us in a way that is for our good. That won't always feel the way things are. But are we ready to trust that he knows that he will work out his purposes for our good? The prayer which is tied to the kingdom illustrates an attitude that is contrary to the typical pattern of human kingdoms. Generally speaking, kingdoms are about exerting power, about showing dominance, about being sure that people will do what they're told by their sense of threat uh, from the authority that is over them. But God's kingdom is a kingdom of service, a kingdom of humility embodied in Jesus and a kingdom of dependence so that even Jesus, the king, should pray is an amazing expression of his dependence on his father to enable him to carry out a remarkable and unique ministry. So he gives to his disciples a prayer not that unlocks a magic box like open sesame, but rather a prayer that says, I depend on my father, but I know that my father seeks my good. That's not like a typical kingdom, but that is the character of this prayer. So prayer is at the heart of the kingdom, but also we'll have seen uh, as we read the passage that the kingdom is at the, at the heart of the prayer. The kingdom is the frame for specific requests. As we read the passage, we will uh, see that right at the heart of the prayer is a call for God's kingdom to come. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. What's it mean for your kingdom to come? Well, God's kingdom means his kingly reign. It doesn't mean a particular geographical location. It means a, a people that demonstrate their allegiance to God. And that kingdom lies at the heart of this prayer. So at the heart of the Lord's Prayer, that which makes the prayer meaningful, is a prayer that God's reign will extend throughout the earth. And everyone who takes that 
prayer on their lips, in effect says, Lord, reign in me. Lord, let your kingdom be evident, not just over there or over there or over there, but right here in my life. Let your kingdom come in my actions, in my thoughts, in my speech. Let your kingdom come in my priorities, in my allegiance to you, in my faithfulness to you, in my love for you, in my trust in you. And so right at the heart of the prayer is the kingdom. I wonder if we think as much as we should of God's kingdom. The fact that he is reigning and that ultimately he will reign over all the earth. Would we pray by nature for God's kingdom to come? Well, maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't. But the gift of this prayer is that he helps us to focus our attention on what God is concerned to do. And this kingdom has implications for God's provision, his forgiveness and his protection, as we shall see. As we look at the way that the prayer is balanced, it's really brought into two fairly equal parts, three requests at the beginning and three requests at the end. The first three focus on God and his purposes. And then the second three focus on how God's purposes relate to his people. So we find, first of all, the Father's holiness and honour. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we think of heaven, we shouldn't think of somewhere far away, somewhere that is distant from us. Rather, it is the place where God dwells. It is the place that is characterized by God's presence and his uh, glory. And so God's heavenly realm can be understood as over all the earth that kind of image that we perhaps are more familiar with. But God is also near to those who call on him. So we shouldn't think of heaven as being far away. It's not a spatial term as much as it is a character term. It's the place that is characterized by God's presence, by his dwelling. He belongs to a different realm, we might say. He belongs to a different type of existence to us. But nonetheless, that realm is not detached from our experience in this world because when we pray, your kingdom come, the prayer immediately gives us some explanation of what that might look like. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we might see that phrase as expressing what it means that your kingdom would come. What does it look like for God's kingdom to come? It means that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, of course, it doesn't take us any time at all to see that that is not the way things are as we would want them to be. And yet every time that somebody submits their will gives their life to Jesus, says, I will live for you, not for me. 
we see a little step in the direction of God's will being worked out. And as God's spirit works in his people, as he lives in us and transforms us day by day, he enables us, imperfectly, but nonetheless, he enables us to live by the standards of the kingdom, the standards of heaven. Remember, uh, Paul says that uh, you, in Philippians, you are to live as good citizens. And then he reminds us at the end of the letter, your citizenship is in heaven. And what does he mean? He means live here, live now, by the standards of your true homeland, by the standards of God's dwelling place. And so we find that God is transforming people so that bit by bit, God's kingdom, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And so earth is drawn in to God's purposes. The kingdom of God will ultimately be expressed in what the Bible describes as a new heaven and a new earth. The ultimate hope of Christians is not to escape the earth, but to be part of a renewed creation in which Jesus' resurrection body is the pattern for what God is going to do in all his people's lives. He is not interested in separating our soul from our body, casting away the, uh, the body as we might uh, get rid of the kernel of a nut. Rather, soul and body, by the work of Jesus Christ, are to be renewed and brought into a renewed cosmos in which God's kingly reign will be worked out. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's not a vain hope as we look around and recognize how far we are from that at the moment, but it's a, it's a hope of what will be. It's a hope that ultimately things will be brought to that place. And so this prayer directs us to think about the king's character, his holiness. It directs us to think about the king's realm, the place where he dwells, heaven, but also the father's reign, the, the father who is working out his purposes for heaven and earth. The prayer also is very practical. It deals with the day-to-day -day needs of his people. And so we recognize these uh, familiar words. Give us today our daily bread. Not a stash for the whole uh, month, but our daily bread. Reminds us of the people of Israel in the wilderness where they were given daily manna. Not too much, not too little. And we find that there is the prayer for forgiveness. Prayer that again recognizes that only God in Jesus can deal with this fundamental need. So we have fundamental needs in terms of our body, the bread that will keep us alive. But no less real and no less pressing 
It's the need that our sin, our rebellion, our failure before God would be cleansed, would be dealt with. And of course, that provision is made in Jesus. And then this surprising one, perhaps, lead us not into temptation or into the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, Many of us in the West uh, wouldn't typically be too concerned about uh, the powers of darkness, we might say, the powers of evil spirits. But as Christians in many parts of Asia or Africa, whether that is a real concern for them, and they will tell you it certainly is. And so Jesus gives to his disciples a prayer that recognizes the reality of an enemy, recognizes the reality of an opponent, but nonetheless recognizes the reality that that opponent is limited and ultimately is defeated. The defeat has yet to see its full implications worked out, but that defeat is nonetheless the case. So that this prayer says, deliver us from the evil one, not in the sense of deliver us from one who might overcome us, but deliver us from the dangers of one who seeks the ill of God's people, but who is nonetheless restricted by God's sovereign power. And so we find the prayer both points our minds in ways that we might not go to God's glory and his kingdom, to recognizing what is in process, awaiting its full realization. But he also gives us words to pray for the realities of day-to-day need for provision, for forgiveness, for protection. What about the doxology? For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're using a new version of the Bible, you'll probably find that, as uh, in the NIV, those words are not included in the biblical text. That's because most of the manuscripts that, upon which our New Testament is built don't have those words as part of Matthew's text. So that's the, the reason they're not included in the gospel. That doesn't mean that they're unbiblical words. In fact, they're very good biblical words. Uh, if you look at First Chronicles 29, uh, 1 Chronicles 29, 10 to 13, you can look them up uh, for yourself later on. You find David praying. David blessed the Lord in the assembly of, uh, in the presence of all the assembly. David said, "Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our ancestor Israel, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth are yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all." So those words that we typically say as part of the church are reflective of a biblical theme even though they probably do not belong there in Matthew's gospel. But actually, those themes, yours is the power, the glory, uh, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, are already present in the prayer itself. So in a sense, nothing is added by those that isn't already there. And it's a good biblical principle that we give honor and glory to God. So, this prayer... This prayer is a gift to you. If you're not sure what to make 
of prayer, what to do with prayer, if you're not sure what words to use, take this prayer and use it as your own. And what you will find is that that prayer pushes you to think about what God is doing in this world in a slightly different way. It will give you a kingdom emphasis in your prayer. Not just what will you do in my personal life, but what are you doing in your kingdom? The very inclusive nature of that opening address, our Father, reminds us that we pray this prayer in community. We pray it with Christians around us, we pray it with Christians around the world, and we pray it with Christians throughout the ages. So I pray that as we reflect on these very familiar words, we will also see that God is working out his kingdom purposes. Even where we find ourselves bewildered by the way things are around us, it will give us hope that God will ultimately give what he calls us to pray for here. That it's not a vain prayer, but it's a prayer based on what God has already accomplished and what he will accomplish. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that the words of this prayer, familiar as they are, would speak to us in a fresh way today. That we would see how central to this prayer is the fact that God is king and that God reigns in his kingdom. He reigns over all the earth. He reigns even where we might wonder if that is the case. And that reign will ultimately be brought to its full expression in the new heavens and the new earth. Our Father, give us hope and encouragement through these words. And may we indeed live our lives in prayer and for the glory of God. Amen.